Welcome to Deus Books. Join us on a journey into the heart of Catholicism through the most interesting reading, stories, and doctrines that the Church has to offer. Happy New Year! Happy New Year. 2029. <laughs> yeah, it's 23. Yeah, it's 23, dude. Um, so we're going we're gonna to kick off a new year with this book. It's called Christ and Culture by H. Richard Niebuhr. Another German theologian. Uh, this book was written in the 1950s, so pre-Vatican II, but also he's a Protestant. Boom. Yeah, so he, uh, but in spite of that, he's talking just about, this is a Christology. It's about Jesus. So yeah. it, it really, he doesn't say anything in here that would like make a Catholic uncomfortable in any way. Well, that's good. Yeah, so uh, kind of interesting. And he's actually used a lot by Catholic theologians. One of those, one of those kinds of dudes. Kind of like a C.S. Lewis type, not Catholic, yes. but awesome. And so, yeah. Although C.S. Lewis is much closer to Catholicism right, than this than, guy is. Yes, I believe he's the, the guy we're reading is Lutheran, but I'm not. He's part of. He was part of the uh, Evangelical Synod of North America, oh. which is like a offshoot or a, like a development of the german evangelical synod of north america so like yeah he's so he's evangelical he's it's like uh it's a mix between lutheran and reformed so it's yeah so yeah like mix of like lutheran mixed with evangelical mixed with yeah is he north american or is he german yeah he's from missouri Oh. But his family is German. Oh, his family's from clearly. Germany. I mean his first okay. name is is actually Helmut and he just went by his uh middle name. Yeah, that's a good idea on his part. <laughs> no one wants to read a book by someone named Helmut. Well, Helmut's a great name. Like Helmut uh, Helmut Kohl, like he was the fir- like well, the first uh prime minister of a united or a chancellor of a united Germany. All right. Well, if you're a medieval knight, I'm sure it's a great name. <laughs> <laughs> Oh uh, just kidding. Just jokes. We love all Germans. My name is Johannes for crying out loud. So. Um, which, fun fact, when we first met, I was expecting someone of Latin American descent. I don't know why. <laughs> you thought oh, it was like Johan, like Johan Santana or whatever? Like it was, Yeah, it was and I think yeah. I had well, the first time we were talking on the phone, and so I didn't have any visual aid to go by. So, mm. yeah. I all didn't right. know anything. Well, That's here fine. we are. Here we are, all those years later, recording a podcast. Uh, I guess I should get into it. Yeah, uh, we should. So what he does in this book is a little bit unique in terms of books, uh, in terms of theology. So he he sort of creates these models. He creates like his own little world to describe Jesus. And he says, in humans take one of three approaches— Two of them are wrong, and one of them is right. Okay. So the first approach that's incorrect is the Christ against culture model. And so when he describes this, he explains the idea, and then he defends the idea. Mm. He's like, this is where they're getting this stuff from, and then he attacks it. Almost like an Aquinas approach. Yes, very uh, Thomistic Aquinas was sense. very good at uh, building up someone's argument. Even better than they did, and yeah. absolutely annihilating it. Yeah, and that's exactly <laughs> that's exactly what he does. Interesting. And okay. Annihilate he does do. Oh, some, good. Because when he, it's so funny when I'm reading this, I'm reading his defense of it, and I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. And then he <laughs> crushes, crushes it. it. 
So there's the Christ against culture. Okay. And then there's the Christ in culture, mm. which is instead of like you, like, so the Christ against culture model is you think the world is bad and you reject it and you want to seclude yourself from it and just like live in your own little like Christian bubble. Right. Very extreme type of like theology. The Amish. Like the Amish. Yes, exactly. Um, and he, and maybe even the ascetics. Mm. But we like could talk about that later. Stuff, yeah, yeah, like he he does critique some of the rules of monastic stuff a little bit. But and then so the Christ in culture model um, is the opposite of that. Obviously, he it's this idea that Christianity is simply meant to enhance your life on Earth. Okay, societally, right. it's very politically driven. Ah. Christianity, um, oftentimes. And then he has what he calls is the right way, which is Christ above culture. Mm. Okay. Um, and then he has some other like clarifications on it where he sort of refines the idea. But when he's describing these, when he's explaining it, defending it, he's actually not using his own words. He's picking theologians that are representative of this and then outlining their argument. Oh. And so like the Christ in culture model. He uses John Locke. He says that he's a perfect example of this, and here's everything Locke thought, and here's the way he understood the world. And so that's that's how it goes. So we're gonna do the uh, we're gonna do the uh, he calls this the enduring problem. It's a passage he does that's representative of an incorrect way of viewing God in relation to the world. Ready? Okay, I'm ready. Judaism is a national life, a life which the national religion and human ethical principles embrace without engulfing. Jesus came and thrust aside all the requirements of the national life. In their stead, he set up nothing but an ethic-based religious system bound up with his conception of the Godhead. He had undertaken to reform the religious and national culture, eliminating what was archaic and ceremonial and civil law. He might have even been a great boon to his, his society. But instead of reforming culture, he ignored it. He did not come to enlarge his nation's knowledge, art, and culture, but to abolish even such culture as is possessed, bound up with religion. For civil justice, he substituted the command of non-resistance. The social regulation and protection of family life, he replaced with the prohibition of all divorce. And with praise of those who made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sakes, instead of manifesting interest in labor and economic and political achievement, he recommended the toilless life exemplified by birds and lilies. And he just kind of goes on. But the guy who says this, uh, he says, Jesus ignored everything concerned with material civilization. And in this sense, he does not belong to civilization. Mm. So this is that prelude to that Christ yeah. against culture model. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So and at first glance, like it doesn't seem that off base, does it? No, because <clears throat> Christ was a counter. I mean. There's two sides to the argument, which he gets into. But that one side, Christ is countercultural when he came in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that's why all the religious higher-ups were all pissed off at him, because he was, like, not acting how they wanted him to act. And so that sort of explanation that he just read from a theologian, it's kind of like... Uh, 
anti-establishment flavor, doesn't it have that? Yeah. Yeah. So now he's he he's here's why Christ against culture is wrong and he's going to he's going to explain. You could take it, you could look at the same stuff and you could flip it from the other direction and you get the same problem. Yeah. So here's what he says. The same Christian attitude, however, arouses Marx and Lenin to hostility because believers do not care enough about temporary existence to engage in a struggle for the destruction of an old order and the building of a new one. They can account for it as only supposing that Christian faith is simply a religious opiate used by the fortunate to stupefy people who should well be aware that there is no life beyond culture itself. Another common argument raised against Christ by his cultural antagonists of various times and persuasions is that he induces men to rely on the grace of God instead of summoning them to human achievement. And so what he's he's saying, like the problem of viewing Jesus that way is that it sort of sets up attacks from people who are into culture saying, like, yeah. like you just don't even care about life then. Right. It's like that classic religious, just the opiate for the masses. Yeah. That's why he quote, you know, he he references or alludes to Marxism. Yeah. And so uh, you kind of get the idea there. He's going to he's going to expand a little bit more here. He says he sort of describes when Christianity first started, it had this anti-culture rhetoric because the culture, Rome, was persecuting Christianity, right? So obviously there's an antagonistic relationship yeah. there. But he says it's more complex. Jesus himself is more complex than that because take, for example, what happened after Constantine, which when he legalized Christianity, and Christianity was the most popular religion in the Roman Empire, he says... The Constantinian settlement, the formulation of the great creeds, the rise of the papacy, the monastic movement, Augustine, Plato, Thomistic Aristotelianism, the Reformation, the Renaissance, the revival and the Enlightenment, liberalism and the social gospel. These represent a few of the many chapters in history of the same enduring problem. It appears in many forms as in, in all ages as the problem of reason and revelation of religion and science, of natural and divine law, of state and church. It has come to view in those studies of the relationships of Protestantism and capitalism, pietism, nationalism, Puritanism, democracy, Catholicism, Romanism, Anglicanism, of Christianity and progress. It is not essentially the problem of Christianity and civilization. For Christianity, whether defined as church, creed, ethics, or movement of thought, itself moves between the poles of Christ and culture. So he's basically saying that it's that religion is so dynamic that it creates tension in all these different realms of thought in it throughout history, which is what he basically was rambling on about. Yeah. And so the first thing he does after that is he defines Christ. Okay? Okay. He says the fact remains that the Christ who exercises authority over Christians whom Christians accept as authority is the Jesus Christ of the New Testament. So that's, he explains more, but you see how he's just trying to cut away all the like, all the like different political thought and economic stuff. And he says, Jesus is the Jesus of the New Testament. Right. It's a very Protestant way of understanding. It is. But I mean, I get what he's doing. Yeah, he wants to disassociate Jesus with the whatever comes along with them. Right. 
whatever baggage he carries. Or whatever baggage is created because of his existence is probably a better way to put it. Jesus, the Jesus of the New Testament is a person with definite, definite teachings, a definite character, and a definite fate. Important are the once debated question whether Jesus actually lived or not is still the moot problem of trustworthiness of the New Testament records, factual descriptions. These are not the questions of importance. For the Jesus Christ of the New Testament is in our actual history. In history, as we remember and live it, shapes our present faith and action. And this Jesus Christ is a definite person. One in the same, whether he appears as man of flesh and blood or as risen Lord, he can never be confused with a Socrates, a Plato, an Aristotle, a Confucius, a Muhammad, or even with an Amos or Isaiah. Interpreted by a monk, he may take on a monastic characteristic. Delineated by a socialist, he may show the features of a radical reformer. Mm. Portrayed by a Hoffman, he may appear as a mild gentleman. But there always remains the original portraits with which all later pictures may be compared and by which all caricatures may be corrected. And in these original portraits, he is recognizably one and the same, the Christ. I I think it's good that he makes that distinction about who Jesus is and who he isn't. By, by he brings up the various lenses when they look at Jesus, how they would interpret uh, interpret him. But he's making the point here that Christ isn't those lenses. Christ is Christ. Right, and y- you could look at him. Let's say you are a monk. You could look at him, and you could see like monastic characteristics yeah, in him. Absolutely. But that's his point: is that that doesn't mean he is a monk. Exactly. Because you could also be a radical political reformer and you could see, and he's saying that's the point of what Jesus makes, what makes Jesus so great is that there's these points of connection in all facets of exactly. human, of human experience. He's like the ultimate uniter. Yes. Because all these different lenses can be applied to him and there are parts of him that are applicable to these different lenses. Yeah, and so he's saying the problem with Christ and culture is that if you're a socialist country, you're going to focus on that and ignore the rest. Yep. You know, um, and so that that was just an example, but that that's what he says is at the root of all problems. Now, before he actually gets into these models, uh, he sort of like he sort of like craps on human culture, like he sort of knocks it down a couple <laughs> pegs. <laughs> he says culture, secondly. Is a human achievement. We distinguish it from nature by noting the evidences of human purpose and effort. A river is nature. A canal is nature. A raw piece of quartz is nature. But an arrowhead is culture. A moan is natural. A word, cultural. Culture is the work of men's mind and hands. It is that portion of man's heritage in any place or time which has been given us laboriously by other men, not what has come to us via meditation of non-human beings or through human beings as how they've acted without intention or without the pros. Hence, it includes speech, education, tradition, myth, all that other stuff. And so that he's just sort of distinguishing between like what, what do we actually mean when we say human culture? So now that we got the definitions out of the way, I think we can get into this. Let's do it. So the first person he critiques, and he's in this Christ against culture model, 
is Tertullian, who I'm a big fan mm. of. Technically considered a heretic, but yes. also one of the first... He was the guy who published Perpetua and Felicity's Journal. Mm, yep. And he was one of the early like Trinitarian theologians who helped flesh all that out, yeah. like what the Trinity means. So he did, he did uh, contribute some good things, but... For sure, yeah. yeah. He's considered a church father. Yes. Um, in the Catholic Church. But anyways, here's he says Tertullian focuses on rigorous morality of obedience to the commandments, including not only love of brothers but of enemies, non-resistance to evil, prohibitions of anger, and the lustful look. He is as strict a Puritan in his interpretation of what Christian faith demands in conduct as one can find. He replaces the positive and warm ethics of love which characterizes the first letter of John with a largely negative morality. Avoidance of sin and fearsome preparation for the coming day of judgment are more important than thankful acceptance of God's grace and the gift of his son. So he's, he's, saying, he's saying Tertullian's more fear-focused. Yes, moral he's like, rigorism. Yeah, you are a wretched, horrible person, and if you don't focus on, you know, Clinging to Christ and being better, you will burn in hell because the end is coming. So he's very like fire and brimstone. Yes, that's what he's saying. Yeah. And he's saying that is a staple of the Christ against culture model. Yes. Is you believe and in And it's this. true. Yeah, I think that's I would spot agree on. with that. Yeah. And like, especially with like the moral rigorism too, like that's often associated with like, I mean, it almost seems too simple to call it like conservative theology. Yeah. Right? I hate using those terms. Me too. But <laughs> I would, I would, I, uh, the, like, those are the people that would claim, like, that, that look for the evil in things before they look for the good in things. Yeah. So, for example, the people that are like, Harry Potter is satanic and pagan, and you shouldn't be reading or watching <laughs> it, and it, it's against Christianity. As opposed to looking at it as a story of sacrifice, friendship, promoting the good, fighting evil. Instead of looking at those positive attributes, they would be quicker to look at the negative well, attributes. Well, they're witches and witch, witchcraft. Right. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. yeah. Even though it's like a, a fantasy fiction <laughs> series. Anyway, we're not here to discuss that. But that's what he's that's what he's getting at, is these people that are counterculture are more focused on uh, the 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 evil of humanity and eradicating it before Jesus comes back. Yeah, and his um, the main reason he feels like he can critique Tertullian in this way is he says it's very different from the first letter of James. That's his biblical support. He says okay. the first letter of James is very, it's not that at all. No, it's like uh, the other end of the spectrum. Um. And so he says Tertullian's sort of theology is at the basis of the ascetic movement or the monastic movement, this idea that you're retreating away from the world. And so he picks on St. Benedict a little bit. That's, that's a no-no. That's bold. The, uh, that is a bold move, sir. Yeah. So, well, let's hear <laughs> the what he father says. father of Western monasticism. All right, bring it. He says the mainstream of the movement as represented, for instance, by the rule of St. Benedict, remained in the tradition of exclusive Christianity. Whatever contributions it eventually made to culture, 
including the recognized social religion, were simply incidental byproducts which it did not intend. Its intention was directed to the achievement of a Christian life apart from civilization, in obedience to the laws of Christ and in pursuit of a perfection wholly distinct from the aims that men seek in politics, economics, science, and art. And then, if it makes you feel better, he says Protestant sectarianism also sort of like took this idea and ran with it. Absolutely. So... It's a little weird. I, I follow his logic here. Yeah. But also, here's my... Well, why don't you go first? What do you think? Well, that's tough because the monastic life by itself is is um, is countercultural just in the fact... Like, just in their way of life. Like, yeah. just in a monastic's way of life. And by design. Right. By design. So, I mean, that's what I'm saying. I, I yeah, see I his see, logic. Yeah, I wonder what his opinion of all religious orders is. He's a Protestant, so it obviously probably would tear or lean negative, maybe? I don't know. But he, yeah, that that's a tough one. because, And that's why I'm weird about hermits. Yeah. You know, personally speaking, like... If it's a call from God, it's a call from God, and it's good. But for me personally, it, it's strange for me when Jesus says, you know, go into the world, and and hermits are not doing that at all. That And, and that's what's missing here at his analysis of St. Benedict is, like, he created that rule. Like, context here is important. Yeah. The whole idea of becoming a monk is, is to be an example for everybody else. Exactly. Nowhere in monastic theology are they under the delusion or do they even have the intention that they want more people to be like this. Right. right. It's the goal, If you're called to it, you discern it, but... Right, but the goal of a monastic order is not to get more monks and hopefully create, like... All, everyone's a monk right. mentality. That's not yeah. its goal. No, exactly. And so, like, what the like a way of thinking of that is like the like monks are like special forces. Like, yeah, it's meant to be small and exclusive and rigorous, right. and and like yeah, that's like, the whole point of it. Yeah, like prayer special forces. Yeah, I like that. So, also the rule of Saint Benedict, which it is a very strict rule. If it you've is. ever read it, he sounds like a total. It's hard. You would not want to hang out with him. <laughs> But part of the reason he did that was because he's in the height of monastic corruption in mm-hmm. the Middle Ages. Yeah, so, he was cleaning house. Yeah, that that was what he was trying to do anyhow. So and he did. Anyways, so he says um, this idea, like, think of uh, for Christ against culture. The state and Christian faith are simply incompatible, for the state is based on love of power. This is him, by the way, defending this. Okay, yeah, right. So this, you remember when we were this talking part, about Yeah, it. this part, he is building up their argument. Yes. So he says... Kind of like when we said, yeah, I see his logic, yada, yada, right. yada. So yeah, keep going. He's saying, the state and Christian faith are simply incompatible, for the state is based on love of power and the exercise of violence, where the love, humility, forgiveness, non-resistance of Christian life draw it completely away from political measures and institutions. Christianity does not so much make the state unnecessary as sap its foundations and destroy it from within. The argument of such Christians as Paul, who contend that the state performs an interim function in restraining evil, does not appeal to the Christ-against-culture model. 
And so there's an example of him trying to defend this. He's saying, like, if you really, like, looked at it, it's like Christ of the gospel and the way we understand societal, like, functions, there is a clear clash there. Yeah. And so, yeah. Now, Protestant sectarians make important contributions to political customs and traditions, such as those which guarantee religious liberty to all members of society. Quakers, intending only to abolish all methods of coercion, have helped to reform prisons, to limit armaments, and establish international organizations for the maintenance of peace through coercion. So I kind of skipped over it, but he's he starts giving historical examples of the Christ against culture model, and instead of picking an individual theologian like Tertullian or St. Benedict, yeah. he's saying, here's a religion that embraced it, uh, the Quakers. Right. And he's saying, the Quakers contributed good stuff. Right. Prison reform, like anti-militarism, like that type of stuff. And and he says, the part of the, another positive thing is, um, society makes it seem like we're trying to prove ourselves and others, uh, trying to prove ourselves to others, where this model of religion, we simply want to prove that Jesus is our Lord, right? And yeah. so you can kind of you can kind of see his uh, you can kind of see his logic again to defend it. He says, and then after I read this, we should talk about the Benedict option a little bit. Yeah, we should because this is this is basically what he was addressing. Yeah, here's he says the movement of withdrawal and renunciation is necessary element in Christian life, even though it is to be followed by an equally necessary movement of responsible, responsible engagement in cultural tasks. So this is him sort of like explaining what's wrong with this model. Yeah. So now he's, he's beginning to turn to the like the refutation of this. Yes. Where this is lacking Christian faith quickly degenerates into a utilitarian device for attainment of personal prosperity or public peace. And some imagined idol called by his name takes the place of Jesus Christ the Lord. What is necessary in the individual life is required also in the existence of the church. If Romans 13 is not balanced by John 1, the church becomes an instrument of state, unable to point men to their trans-political destiny, and their super political loyalty. So that's his overall problem with the Christ against culture model, is it it sort of devolves Christianity in that there needs to be this balance of, like what we talk about all the time, what Gaudium et Spes talks about. Yeah. In the world, but not of the world, right? Exactly. Yeah. And and uh, Bishop Barron is, is good at this, like picking out like truths in various movements um right, right. kind of like what Niebuhr was doing with the Quakers it's like yeah this is some good stuff they gave us but then he goes into the you know this is where this movement is lacking like you can, right. this is not all of it they got some good parts but overall this is not where we where we need to go and that's kind of like what the Benedict option was arguing for yeah i mean clearly Clearly, the Benedict Option is an example of this, right? Like yeah. he would definitely, I would be, argue he that. would definitely critique that whole mo- that whole idea. I think right? so. I think so. Because the Benedict Option is about okay, we gotta we gotta retreat from the mess of the world, 
and form our own thing and live like the Amish, essentially. <laughs> yeah, but what I wonder, let me see your thoughts on this. What would Niebuhr say to, like, like one of the things that guy's point was is that the world has already rejected the church, and in order to save it, we need to retreat from it. Yeah. So, I mean, there's still, a, like, a evangelize, an evangelization process there. Just instead of, like, being in the streets with the people, it's like you're going to retreat so people look at you from afar and right. hopefully get drawn in. And I think that's... That's a stretch, right? You're saying... That's what the Benedict Option yeah, was no, no, yeah, to do. Yeah, that's yeah. what it's saying, and I think... I think Nimor would be against that. I think so. Too. I'm against that. Yeah. Like Jesus didn't just stand on a mountain and be like, "Hi. <laughs> if you want to hear my message, come uh, check it out. But if not, you know, stay over there, do your thing. I'm going to be over here." No. That's not at all what Jesus did. And just uh for for point of reference when he talks about uh Romans 13 and then John 1. So like Romans 13, St. Paul says, let ev- and this is 13.1, let every person be subordinate to the higher authorities. Yeah. You know, there, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been established by God. So what St. Paul is saying is that through God's permissive will or direct will, either way, his will, these authorities exist. And so we need to be subordinate to them. Okay. And so that's, so that's what he's saying here in Romans 13, is it's all about... Submission to the state, and that's the church becomes, as he called it, utilitarian. Exactly. In that way. Yeah. Okay. Almost like uh, if you think about it, a modern day example would be like the Russian Orthodox Church in Russia. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 Christian. It's a Russian Orthodox Church. They have their own Kirill, I think the second or whatever is is the head of is the patriarch of that uh, of that uh, Orthodox Church, but they're basically they submit to Putin. What's the context, though? Because Paul himself got... This is to the Romans, so this would be Romans. But he got killed by the Romans. Right, but he's saying he was it is obedient. He, like, oh, I... Yeah. He's basically arguing, like, if they're going to come after you... Yeah, we're not going to start a revolution. Exa- right. Okay. So that's what St. Paul's saying. He's right. like, we're not going to rise up and take down the authority. The authority is there because God either directly put them there or allows them to be there. And so if we oppose them, we're opposing God. And so there's arguments to be made. I mean, you can go down the rabbit hole of, okay, what about the Nazis? Yada, yada. But I mean, but, but a modern day example of that would be the Russian Orthodox Church being submissive basically to the Russian government under Putin. Yeah, that I know the patriarch the of the Russian Orthodoxy Church said Putin was doing like the work of right. God. <laughs> yes. So. so there's your modern example. And then uh, to jump to to John 1, um, which is kind of interesting. This is, you know, we've we done Dave Erbum, but just to just to refresh it, right? John 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. The word was God. Oh, and then jump ahead. Uh, all things came to be through him, and without him, nothing came to be. So that's almost like saying, okay, we don't need the state because God right. made everything. It's sort of so like, yeah. it's this, okay, well, God made everything, so why do I got to talk to you when I can go to the big man yeah, and handle my it's problems? It's what they through- call in 
theological circles a very high Christology. You're focusing on the divinity right. aspect of, yeah. of religion versus the like practical aspect right. of it. And so what Niebuhr's talking about is, is this balance between the two. Yeah. So okay. that's just to give people some some context. Thanks for uh, thanks for pulling those up and clarifying You're welcome. that. Um, because I knew what he was referring to with John, but I didn't. I don't. I'm sorry, but I don't remember Romans 13 off the top of my head. It's all right. <laughs> You're not a Protestant, so it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to the Protestants for knowing the Bible. I'll give them, I'll give them that. See, he, pulling out the good. See, here's another good critique against the Christ against culture model. Furthermore, for example, the command to love the neighbor cannot be obeyed except in specific terms that involve cultural understandings of your neighbor's nature and except in specific acts directed towards him as a being who has no place who has a place in culture as member of family or religious community as national friend or as enemy as rich or poor in his efforts to be obedient to Christ the radical christian therefore has to reintroduce ideas and rules from a non-christian culture in two areas government and community yeah so that again it's like yes this seems reasonable reasonable and then it's like okay how do you if you just want to drop everything and follow god well how do you follow the commandment of loving your neighbor if you don't interact with your neighbor exactly (laughs) and to drive the point home on this uh on that is in john one again if you go a little bit down this is uh john uh, 110 he that's the word, that's Jesus. He was in the world, and the world came to be through him, but the world did not know him. Yeah. So if you're not in the world, the world will not know him, and the whole point is to bring him to light to your neighbor, and part of that is loving your neighbor, and then, yeah, so he. This is this is the major critique against... Uh, the against culture component, because if you're just completely separated, evangelization doesn't happen. Yeah. Hey, pop quiz. All right. Do you remember the two theologians who he used as representative of Christ against culture? Tertullian. Yeah. And And, uh, St. Benedict. St. Benedict. Watch him dunk on them now. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. He says, for the monastic rule of Benedict of Nursia, Benedict seeks scriptural foundation for all his regulation and counsels, but the D- New Testament doesn't suffice him, nor does the Bible as a whole. He has to find in old reflections of human experience and social life rules by means of which to govern his new community. So he's saying that their scriptural and non-scriptural regulations are presented in his rule. So, so saying, as a typical Protestant would, because he is deviating or at deviating at at worst or at best maybe either way he's moving away from scripture is what i'm trying to say and yeah. because he's moving away from scripture or getting rules outside of scripture it's no bueno he's what he's he's trying to point out a contradiction in benedict yeah so he's saying Benedict thinks the world is bad and you need to seclude yourself to perfect yourself in Christ. Yes. Yet in order to get his people to do that, he has to pull from rules outside of Scripture. Right. Where are you getting those? I.e. the world. Yes. Yeah. That's what he's saying. And then Tertullian, too. When Tertullian recommends modesty and patience, stoic overtones are present. And so he's saying that 
everything Tertullian is talking about, he's getting from Stoic philosophy, which is a Roman philosophy. Yeah, so Stoicism is all about, you know, lack of passion. You're basically emotionally neutral. You don't get excited about anything because that way you can't ever be disappointed. Stoicism is a lot like if you think about uh, like Buddhism. Yeah. This lack of attachment to things emotionally. Uh, spiritually and there are parts of stoicism that fit very well into christian theology like the whole idea of redemptive suffering is a good example where that fits nicely but that's his point is he's saying he even tertullian is using worldly ideas to explain his non-worldly theology right so like hello that right that's where he's coming from so that's kind of the overall critique against that whole model of thought do um now, I'm pretty sure that covers it. For that. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, he's he's spot on, though. Like, oh, yeah, we have to be against culture, but let me, like, get, grab some things real quick before I leave. Yeah. It's like, wait, you're bringing it with you then. Like, <laughs> Right. So, so we've got one of the three models down. Do we feel like we have, do you feel like I have sufficiently explained what the model is explained what, where it comes from and why he thinks it's wrong. Well, let's just do this, then. Let's just quickly recap it. One, model against Christianity must be against culture because Christ was against culture, and his critique of it is, well, wait a minute. You're, you're gathering rules and ways of living that are outside of Scripture, therefore they're from the world, therefore they're from culture, and you're just a walking contradiction and jesus's own commandments right. involve a yes. degree of and interacting with culture exactly yeah. and the p- examples of this were the quaker religion saint benedict of nursia tertullian these people right okay all right check mark boom got that one done now here's christ of culture oh here we go this is gonna be juicy this uh, this one is juicy what is offered in the christ of culture model is kindly liberal guidance for good people who want to do right and for their spiritual directors. All conflict between Christ and culture is gone in this model. The tension that exists between church and world is really due in the estimation of Albillard, this is the guy he's using, to the church's misunderstanding of Christ. So uh, what he's saying there. What he's saying there is, let's use the Russian Orthodox Yeah. again. If the Pope says, hey, y- you can't say Putin's doing the work of God because he just invaded a country, he's, he's saying the Christ of culture model will point the error to the church and say, no, you are misunderstanding Christ, yeah. and they'll pull out from all these things and justify why they're able to right. do what they're able to do. And even... Uh like uh we'll get into the prosperity gospel i feel like a little bit later on yeah but even that does the same thing marxism does the same thing um you know new age scientism does the same thing it's like wait a minute we can explain that with science so like get that out of there um yeah all of that yeah so it's like the the way i understand this is Christianity is like a means to an ends in life. That's how I, if I were to summarize what what he's talking about, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So, whereas the Christ against culture model was like Christianity, the religion is like this is our goal, this is what we want, and yeah. all anything that distracts me from that, anything right. that's not that is wrong. And it's it's fundamentally opposed 
Yes. And then it's here, like culture versus Christianity. This is culture and Christianity. Yeah, this is saying that the, that Jesus came to make our lives in the world better. Mm-hmm. And if there's a conflict between his message and the way society works, then it's a misunderstanding of Jesus. Boom. Okay. So, for example, among these many men in movements, one may, one name, a John Locke, who wrote The Reasonableness of Christianity, commend itself to all those who use in region, but he focuses on the reasonable manner characteristic of an English culture that found the middle way between all extremes. And so he's, he's going to use John Locke mostly as the, the person for this, um, as like his theologian that's representative of this. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so he, he stated this. The sayings of Jesus, which commended themselves to him, though Jesus's doctrines and the sage of this judgment have not only come down to us, are their mutilated and corrupted form, but were defective in their original pronouncement. Yet in spite of this, a system of morals is presented to us, which if filled up in the style and spirit of the rich fragments he left us would be the most perfect and sublime that has ever been taught by man. Christ did two things. He corrected the deism of the Jews, conforming them in their belief in only one God, and giving them notions of attributes and government. And his moral doctrines relating to kindred and friends were more pure and more perfect and more correct than of any Jewish philosopher. So that's sort of the quintessential Christ of culture model. So just to recap what he said there, he's like, some of these people may even think that what's in the Bible, what's scripture, what's gospel, you know, maybe not all of it applies to it because it could have been changed. It could have been things, but the overall yeah. moral framework of the gospel is what we should focus on. That's what he's saying. Right. Kind of like the, the spirit, the spirit of the gospel. Yes. And before I continue on, I dare I make a statement. Dare it. This is where Western culture is right now. Yeah, well, uh, it's interesting that he brings up John Locke. Uh, John Locke is is considered the father of liberalism. And what we mean in this context about liberalism is not like left-wing politics, although it's a small part of it. Liberalism in this sense is about accepting a multitude of ideas, like freedom, freedom of and thought. autonomy, right? Right, yes, separation of church and state, yada, yada. John Locke was very influential on the founding fathers of this country. And so Locke's philosophy is literally wrapped into our American soul, if you will. The American mindset is John Locke. It's individualism, freedom, autonomy, different thought, all of those things, and the West largely embodies this now too. So you're right; like this is um, and where the West is at politically. I actually I read that book that he's referring to, the reasonableness of of Christianity. Mm-hmm. I actually really like it. I think there's a lot of great theology in there, but he, I think he's correct in what he cr- critiques about it. But just like you read any theologian, it's like. Yeah. It's like there can be a lot of good stuff said with even if his entire thesis isn't, you know, doctrinally sound. You know what I mean? I think it'd be actually worth doing one of his books one day. Yeah, maybe. John Locke's. Yeah. Maybe we'll do that. Yeah. Add it to the list. Um, Okay, so uh, here's his... uh, 
here, here's kind of an explanation of that. So to recap, he said, Jesus did two things. He corrected the Jews' religion and told them there's only one God. Yep. And then he gave them a good moral framework to follow. That's what Jesus did. Yes. And so he's going to expand on what he means by that. He says, not only um, philanthropy to kindred and friends, to neighbors and countrymen, but all mankind gathering into one family under the bonds of charity, peace, common, once in uncommon aids, the philosophers, the statesmen, the reformers, poets, and novelists who acclaim Christ with Jefferson all repeat the same theme. Jesus Christ is the great enlightener, the great teacher. There's a key word. The one who directs all men and culture to the attainment of wisdom, moral perfection, and peace. Sometimes he's hailed as the great utilitarian, sometimes the great idealist, sometimes the man of reason, sometimes as the man of sentiment. But whatever the categories are by means of which he is understood, the things for which he stands for are fundamentally the same. A peaceful, cooperative society achieved by moral training. Yeah. That's the Christ of culture thesis right. essentially and, and i like the the word enlightenment that he uses yeah you hear that a lot you hear that a lot it's, and go ahead yeah it's just you know christ gave us these these ways to live to to be able to broaden our minds you know this love of neighbors like okay i respect them i uphold their dignity but in this sense it's almost like, okay what are their thoughts and ideas when and how much weight uh, do I put on them? And so I have to put take weight, and so like, yeah, th- that's that's the Christ in culture, as he's saying, is is this enlightening, almost humanistic approach to life. Yes, um, yeah. and that's again, founding fathers were big on on humanism. Now listen to how he defends this idea. All right. Very convincing in my mind. Christ belongs in culture because culture itself, without sense and taste for the infinite, without a holy music accompanying all its works, becomes sterile and corrupt. The Christ of religion does not call upon men to leave homes and kindred for his sake. He enters into their homes and all their associations as the gracious presence which adds an aura of infinite meaning to all of our temporary tasks. I wonder... Where he's going to go when he critiques it, but I already have something in mind that critiques it, but I don't want to get there just yet. Okay. But uh, this is the Jesus that would absolutely defend the... uh, This would be like Romans 13, Jesus. Yeah. And here's some more defense, some more scriptural defense. Jesus thought no temporary, no temporal value as the great life of the soul, but yet he healed the sick in body when he forgave their sins. He made distinctions between fundamental principles and traditions of little worth. He found wise men in his day nearer the kingdom of God than the religious. Though he commanded his disciples to seek the kingdom above all else, he did not advise them to scorn other goods, nor was he indifferent to the institution of the family, to the order in the temple, to the freedom of the temporarily oppressed, and to the fulfillment of the duty of the powerful. Uh, this is almost like uh, the socialist Jesus. Yes. The uh, Yeah, so like, you know, indifferent to family. He was more about, uh, and I guess in a way they're kind of skewing the whole, you know, father versus son or type of thing, which is what I was using to uh, argue against it but in this way they're kind of skewing it it's like no 
Jesus is beyond the bounds of family. It's yeah. It's more about community. Yes. And and that's where that whole yeah. I see what what road he's going down with it, that. Here's some other good words. Instead of using words like Messiah, Lord, and Spirit, interpreters of the Christ of culture will use words like reason, wisdom, mm. emancipator, yep. even avatar. Ah. And the whole time he's doing this, he's quoting notable theologians mm-hmm. to like explain that he's not just making this up, you know. Right. But that's the idea. Um the other point is this, the fact that Christians have found kinship between Christ and the prophets of the Hebrews, the moral philosophers of Greece, the Roman Stoics, Spinoza, Kant, humanitarian reformers and eastern mystics may be less indicative of a Christian instability than of a certain stability in human wisdom. Mm. So, um, I'm ready for him to dunk on this. So. Yes, me too. So here's his objection of this standpoint. These people... Um, oh, but before he does that, he, he takes some ownership here. He says cultural Protestants find it strangely desirable to, like, embrace this. Oh, so even 100%. Though he, I totally... Yeah. Yeah. Even though he critiqued... He's critiquing Catholic fathers, like Benedict, he's mm-hmm. not overlooking... Like, the same thing with the Quakers, too. That was a right. Protestant religion. So I just, it's important to acknowledge yeah, that. I like that. It, yeah, that's good. Yeah. So he says, here's what they do. They take some fragment of the complex New Testament story and interpretation, call this the essential characteristic of Jesus, elaborate on it, and thus reconstruct their own mythical figure of the Lord. Some choose the opening verses of the fourth gospel, some the Sermon on the Mount, some the announcement of the kingdom as the key to Christology. It is always something that seems to agree with the interests or needs of their time. So it that's like proof texting, right? Yeah. It's like if I wanted to justify killing someone based on scripture, I'm sure I could find verses that would oh, <laughs> find a ton, especially in the Old Testament. You can find all kinds of verses to yeah. slay your enemies. <laughs> yeah. So he goes on. The point of contact they seek to find with their hearers dominates the whole sermon. And in many instances, the result portrait of christ is little more than the personification of an abstraction jesus stands for the idea of spiritual knowledge or of logical reason or the sense for the infinite or moral law of brotherly love ultimately these fanciful descriptions are destroyed by the force of the biblical story Mm. with or without the official actions of bishops and councils, the New Testament witness maintains itself against them. In the second century, okay, I don't need to go on that. No, I do. He says, in the second century, the formation of the New Testament canon and the 19th century, the 20th continuous work of biblical scholars make it evident that Jesus Christ is not like this. He is greater and stranger than all of these portraits indicate. Yeah. C.S. Lewis said a similar thing in Mere Christianity when he was talking about people trying to like reduce him to like a moral teacher. He's like, yeah. he's like, either he was completely out of his mind or he was God. Because the things he said, if you really understand what they mean, 
like you're not just gonna say he was just some good moral teacher that said cute things to make you live better, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and that's essentially what what he's saying. He says, like their opponents on the other side, the cultural Christians tend to separate reason and revelation, but evaluate the two principles differently. Reason, they think, is the highest road to knowledge. Christ, for them, is the great teacher of rational truth and goodness. Um, whereas the Christ against culture model was like, you know, divine revelation sort of thing. Right. This is like faith only, and this is like reason only. Yeah. Now, here's how, here's his final way of saying it. He says, Christianity is all very reasonable to John Locke, yet it requires one thing which goes beyond reason, and which this reasonable man cannot reasonably refute, the acknowledgement that Jesus is the Christ. Bam! <laughs> <laughs> but that's important to, like, like, to brush over, like, that Christ is his title, the Messiah of like the Jewish religion. Yeah, the like, anointed one. Yeah. Yeah. If you, you, it's easy to miss all that stuff. Um, it, or it's easy for Locke to overlook all that stuff by focusing on reasonableness. But he's saying, like, just to even say his name, just to say that Jesus is the Christ is an unreasonable statement for the most part. Yeah, it's completely unreasonable. Yeah. So there you go. And, so we've got all. F- I I covered that. That was Christ in. That was Christ in culture. Or yeah. The Christ of culture. Do we need to recap that? So yeah. So basically, you'll find the truths of. Uh, you find truth, in the world. You'll find ultimate truth, in the world, uh, in the in the everyday in the in the wisest of people. You'll find the truth. Yeah. You don't need. These these extraordinary religious experiences, yeah, and Christianity sort of serves you in the sense of like enlightening your life on Earth, right? right? And you just need to open yourself up more to it, and you'll get more of what the world has to offer. It's very much like the prosperity gospel. Is like if you open yourself up more to God, you'll automatically become wealthier. Oh, yeah, that's like a sign of your... Of your faith. Yes. Is if you have all this faith in God and support this church, you will grow in wealth. And you're, so if you're poor, that means you're not, you're not doing it. That means you haven't connected to God's blessing. Yeah, and, a, a nice tagline for Prosperity Gospels is like... Listen to this testimony about the person who donated and then something amazing happened yeah. to them after like they got a promotion yep. or they got a new job or whatever. That's the prosperity gospel. Yeah, and that is very much um yeah, so like that is very much the Christ of culture because yeah. his whole point is saying that you're essentially picking things out of the gospel or right. out of the Bible to right. justify how you want to live your life. And you could apply that to pop culture as well. Like, you know, look at all this, you know, musician, they used to do this kind of music, but then they like, oh, but then they did pop music and then they exploded. Like, oh my gosh. Like, uh, like Katy Perry used to sing. Oh, I, to, I finally understand what you're yeah, talking about. Yeah, she used about. to sing like uh, Christian you know, music. I don't yes, think professionally, okay. maybe she did professionally, but, but then she switched over, quote unquote, and now boom, she's this big artist. Yeah. 
you know, uh, Taylor Swift, you know, she's very in tune with pop culture and society. And so she's blowing up. So that must mean that she's she's doing something right. That's a right. sign from God. It's like their success means that God is sanctioning right. what exactly. they're doing and you know, saying. And all oh, that look stuff. who's in power. You know, yeah. this the so and so is the president. Up, oh, that must mean God anointed them to be the president. Right. It's like yeah, yeah, no, definitely not. <laughs> yeah, he um he might like to go back to you know Romans thirteen. Yeah, God permitted it to happen. His permissive will allowed it to happen, uh, but doesn't always mean that God literally was like, "Yep, I'm gonna pluck you from here, and I'm gonna put you here." And you <laughs> I'm yeah, gonna, I'm gonna ask you a question that I think I already know the answer to. All right, of those two sort of characteristics, which one are you more inclined to go towards? <sighs> I can give you a cop out answer. It's like. With our political climate, it almost like depends on who's in power. Like if, yeah. like for example, um, you know, it's no secret that I, I lean more conservative politically, um, and so like when when the conservatives are more in power, I tend to be more okay with how government's going. And so I'm <laughs> like, oh yeah, this is God. Look, God blessed us. Yeah. <laughs> but then when uh, you know when more liberal. Uh, people are in power then i'm like up oh, we gotta we gotta cut it off this is yeah yep, we gotta everyone march to steubenville and we'll set up a little <laughs> colony and then <laughs> so yeah it's like it's a cop-out answer but like yeah i guess it depends on who's in power uh in terms of my natural disposition um i i think i'm i'm more naturally disposed and i think we're in the West, and so I feel like we're overall we're more naturally disposed to Christ in culture. Yeah, I think because just the influence that secular culture has. I I think I tend to I think I tend to like the way he was describing the theology. I think I fit more in line with the Christ against culture. Okay, like it's t- it's easy for me to like look at something going on, get frustrated, and be like, "Well, I'm just not of the world," you know. <laughs> I'm not of the world. I'm yeah. going to go back into my room. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it, whatever. This this won't matter after a while. <laughs> so I feel like I feel like I'm more like I find that side a little bit more appealing. Yeah. Just based off of like frustrations or something or I don't know. That's just my I've only been thinking about it for right. 20 seconds, but that's why I think. Yeah, I'm, I think <laughs> I I worry I'm still working on this, but I worry a lot about like what people think of me, and so I think that naturally disposes me to being for Christ in culture. Like, oh, if I'm just you know make as long as I don't piss people off, I'm safe. Yeah, I guess so. I think Christ in culture is the safe option, and you like living on the edge more. Christ against culture, you're like yeah. And I, and I think it's funny when people think like I'm weird. I'm like that's because you don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> You're not wise. Yeah. You, You're not enlightened <laughs> or woke. Yeah. So, that, anyways. Hey, don't get me started on wokeism either. It's not about what this That's a Christ of culture thing, I feel like. Yeah. Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, that interesting little personal reflection we just had. Yeah. Uh, just to quickly wrap it up, his last model, the Christ above culture model, Um. Is is what he thinks is the right way to look at it. Okay. 
And he says, the fundamental issue does not lie between Christ and the world. Important as that issue is, but between God and man. So he's saying the fundamental way to look at this relationship is not as what, what, how does Christianity react with the world? It's how do we react with God Ooh. and how does God interact with us? He's like, that's the first step to getting the Christ above culture model. I like that. And so what this means is Christ isn't against culture. Nope. He's not okay with it. He nope. rises above it. Yes. He transcends it. And his theologian, who's representative of this, is Thomas Aquinas. Sorry, I had to do that. Yeah, had it not been Thomas Aquinas, <laughs> I would not be reading this book. No, <laughs> this book would be absolutely garbage. No, but it, it, he, I mean, the doctor, the D'Angelic doctor. I mean, yeah, that's good that he brings up Aquinas. Keep going. So he's, he says, and we can quickly cover this because we kind of get it after he just critique that but he says with that formulation it introduces the discussion about christ and culture the conception of nature on which all is founded and which is good and rightly ordered by the one to whom jesus christ is obedient and with whom he is inseparably inseparably united where this conviction rules christ and the world cannot simply be opposed to each other neither can the world as culture be simply regarded as the realm of godliness since it is at least founded on the world as nature and cannot exist, save it, as it is upheld by the governor and creator. Well, so, kind of a wordy sentence, but the key there is, we are obedient to Christ, but He's bound in, we're bound inseparably to Him. Mm. So there, a relationship exists there, a loving relationship exists there, yet so there is obedience. And so that's right. Him sort of merging the two. It's like the both-and principle. Yeah, and he actually says that at some point in this, he says. But he, anyways, he says, cannot separate the works of human culture from the grace of God, for all those works are possible only by grace. Right. But neither can they separate the experience of grace from cultural activity. How can men love the unseen God in response to his love without serving the visible brother in human mm. society? I agree. Yeah, it it seems so obvious when he says it, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, so the synthesis of this. It, here's an example: the commandments of Christ to sell everything for the sake of following Him, to give up judging our fellows, to turn the other cheek to vi uh, to the violent, to humble ourselves and become the servants of all. To abandon family and forget tomorrow, cannot the synthesis see, but made to rhyme with the requirement of human life and civilized society by allegorizing them or projecting them into the future when changed conditions will make possible. They are too explicit with that because he knows that God is the creator. He cannot evade responsibility for meeting requirements that are given in the nature of man. Another wordy sentence. But what he says is that it's is that to follow God means to follow our human nature. And to follow our human nature means an interaction in society. Yeah. But you see, it's still, even though you're primarily working in the world, it's still coming from God. That's yes. his point. Yeah. And I think he's spot on with that. And I think it's a it's a good point that he brings up, you know, following our human nature is what uh brings us closer to God. And we experience that in the world because we're we're your social creatures. We're not, you know, uh, loners by 
design or by nature. So, yeah, when you cooperate with the nature of your humanness, your humanity, things will tend to go well, and that's because you are more in line with the will of God. Yeah. If you're... And, and this is where the struggle comes from when it comes to the, the culture, is oftentimes in culture, we are trying to work against human nature. Because, because we're heavily on, we're leaning heavily on intellect and reason. And so we're, our intellect is what separates us from the animals. We are capable of acting against nature. Animals are not. They're on, only when we introduce the idea of you know, a monkey holding a cell phone or whatever, that's when they act against nature. By themselves, they cannot do it. Right. We, on the other hand, because of our intellect, are able to work outside of nature. And that's because we are made in God's image. Yeah, like we're not... To work outside of nature, you're, you're saying that we're not bound by our natural instincts. Correct. We're not like, yeah. Right. And so we can use this intellect to do whatever we want with our bodies, to go to the moon, to go... There's all these things that we're capable of doing that are outside of simply being a homo sapien. Yeah. And and the thing is, is when we use that intellect to move us away from cooperating with our nature, that's when problems happen. Yeah. Um, Listen to him talk about Thomas Aquinas, because it's really, it's especially interesting from a Protestant's perspective. But he says Thomas Aquinas is probably the greatest synthesis in Christian history. He represents a Christianity that has achieved or accepted full responsibility for all great human institutions, partly because the full weight of the Roman Catholic Church had been thrown into the scales in his favor, but largely because the intellectual and practical adequacy of his system, his way of solving the problem of culture in Christ, was standard, had became a standard way for hosts of Christians. He's basically saying that you know, Thomas Aquinas, he didn't reject culture. He didn't embrace it. He, like, took ownership of it yeah. almost. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And and it makes sense because, you know, God gave us dominion over the world. God gave us dominion over culture. We have direct influence on culture. We can either choose to align it toward God or align it away from him. And so when you take ownership of it, you you become aware of this capability. And so if you're a virtuous Christian, you're going to move it or attempt to move it closer to God. Yeah. and Yeah. Yeah. That's well said. I Thank thought I was going to add something, but I didn't have anything of value. <laughs> Appreciate it. And a funny and a, and a fun fact, the Christianity that Thomas Aquinas, St. Thomas Aquinas represents is Catholicism. Yes. <laughs> like, that's the irony of this thing. Like, bro, come home. <laughs> well, wait till you hear this next All passage. Right. Thomas also answers the question about Christ and culture with a both and. Aha, there it is. Catholic's favorite phrase. Boom. Yet his Christ is far above culture, and he does not try to disguise the gulf that lies between them. Mm. His own manner of life indicates how he united these two claims, the two hopes and beginnings. He is a monk, faithful to the vows of poverty, celibacy, and obedience. With the radical Christians, he has rejected the secular world. But 
He is a monk in the church, which has become the guardian of culture, the fosterer of learning, the judge of the nations, the protector of the family, the governor of social religion. So I hope he converted before he died. I don't think he did. But I mean, what he was looking for. Yeah. What he's writing about is what the church proposes and what we as Catholics should strive to be. Yeah, and it, it, it's interesting that he uses that as his model. Yeah. Yet he himself, is, I, I want. That's a good question. That's in, intriguing. I, I wonder. I'm curious. But about I wonder. His life. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if. Uh, so clearly, we know he likes Dominicans and not Benedictines. <laughs> uh, and I wonder if that's because Dominicans teach, so the universities were filled with these monks, and learning was. Yeah. Um, facilitated by these Dominicans, these order of preachers. The preachers, order of preachers, they're in the world preaching. So clearly he likes the Dominicans. He likes their way of of doing stuff. Yeah, and I'm trying to think of the time period in which he grows up in. So he wrote this in the 40s. That's sort of at the big, in the middle of the kind of big Catholic migration into the United States, right? Yeah. But he probably grew up in the... But that means he was late 1800s. Late 1800s, right? assuming he didn't write this when he was 20 years old, which <laughs> I, I highly doubt. But this is the last passage I'll read because it's sort of. Yeah, he was born in 1894 in Wright City, Missouri. Huh. And he died in 1962. This and he is wrote Christ in Culture in 1951. 1951, so okay. Post war. Pre-Vatican II. Pre-Vatican II. When did he die? Uh, 62. So it was during the council. Uh, I wonder what would have happened had he stuck around. Yeah, another... that's that, yeah, that is fascinating. Because that's the council addressed. Really, the council, Christ and culture, I mean, the council is really... Well, Gaudium et Spes is like... It, that's in it. In cases, it feels like we're reading the yeah. same thing. Yeah. I wonder... So I wonder mm-hmm. what he would have... What his commentary would have yeah. been. That's fascinating. See, the theology nerd in me is ashamed that he didn't live for another ten freaking years. <laughs> I know, <laughs> right? Ten more years, man. Yeah, and I and I'm curious as to what his influence, if there was some influence. Yeah. I mean, because it his. was an ecumenical council. There were Protestant observers. There at were this observers council. there. Yeah. So I wonder if his. I mean, this book might have influenced some people there. Uh, that's that's something that's interesting. Yeah. We'll talk about that more in a second. Here's right. sort of how he marries the two once and for all. He says, think about like biblical, he's talking about biblical justice. Mm-hmm. So he's like, here's how you can have the biblical fundamentalist and then the biblical liberal and how you can kind of marry the two. He says, if you think about it, the private management of exterior goods is a fair and just arrangement for their use for purely private, egoistic ends indefensible. Blah, 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 blah. Okay, here's what I went to read. (laughs) (laughs) Trade involving profit is lawful, but it's not virtuous. And it must be governed by principles of fair price and abstention from usury. Not because the Bible prohibits usury, but because it's unreasonable to sell what is non-existent. Government, the state, the use of political power are provided for in similar fashion. God has created man a social being, and a society is impossible on the human level without directions in accordance with the law. So, you know, I wish I hadn't even read that statement. I feel like 
I feel like 10 minutes ago that would have been good. But <laughs> You can tell we do this live. We do not script this. One more, then I'm done, I promise. We don't edit it either. And the great no. point of the gospel is that the new beginning, the new birth, the new life is not an event that depends on change in temporary history or in the life of the flesh. It is the beginning with God from above, from heaven, in the spirit. It is a citizenship and a kingdom that is not of this world, yet is not a kingdom of the future, but at hand. That means it's 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 with us now. This is basically a giant book on the Catholic both and, in my mind. Yeah, that's <laughs> literally it. I mean, his final thing is Aquinas. He does, in this book, he does um, add his own spin on it where he sort of refines Aquinas. It's called Christ the Transformer of Culture, but in my mind, it's not really. I think those three those three archetypes are the most, most important part of this book. Yeah. What'd you think? I, I mean, I liked it. It was interesting how I, I, I'm always fascinated when Protestants arrive at the catholic conclusion and yet remain protestant that's yeah that always puzzles me that's the great mystery uh god handles that um that's good because <laughs> i would be a disaster if i'd handle that but i mean that's why we call them our separated brothers and sisters they there's elements they possess elements of truth they pursue christ i mean th- these are good things uh yeah. and um you know christ even says there's don't bother the people that are doing stuff in my name but aren't in our little group. Right. You know, if they're not against me, they're for me kind of thing. So, yeah, but in terms of practicality, like pragmatism, it it baffles me when Protestants get to a, a philosophical conclusion that Catholics do, and then they don't go further with it yeah and i wonder if part of that i'm trying to think of like the historical context i wonder if part of that is like maybe maybe in his mind like the the theology the tradition of what he thinks is right is there but he's not seeing it in the catholic church mm. that's entirely possible right it is in which if he did live another 10 years and read the documents of vatican II, yeah maybe he would have come to that conclusion like okay you know that is in the church, and that is what the church is trying to do. And so I'll jump back over the Tiber, as, as they say. Hmm. But yeah, that is that is a fascinating thought. Yeah. But I, 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 I wonder, it. I might have to do some research to see, like, what his influence was. Yeah. Like, afterwards and before. Because I feel like people have quoted him before. I feel like in things I've read, he was brought up. Yeah. I wonder if Benedict brings him up. I. His name is, I think he's, I think his stuff has been discussed before. I, yeah, I'd be shocked if it wasn't, especially yeah. considering how similar it is to what was the whole ecumenism movement in, yeah. in Vatican II. Like, I, like, he had to have had influence, or if not him in particular, his school of thought, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a fun question to think about. But yeah, that was a great way to start the new year with this uh, this podcast. Yeah, so think about your life. Are you <laughs> <laughs> are you are you too much in culture? Or are you too much away from culture? Or are you the gate the both again the both and? Are you yeah. right in the middle? Yeah, it is one of the reasons I like that book is it's an amazing book for self reflection. Mm-hmm. Even though it's not really about your it's not individual... it's not meditation at all. Yeah, yeah, but like I couldn't help when he's describing these. 
these ways of manipulating the gospel to mm-hmm. fit your own like I couldn't help but see myself like doing that a couple different right. times. And what's weird is like if you took a, the Christ against culture model, he talked about you know super radical liberals like socialist anarchists, but yep. he also talked about like authoritarian fundamentalists, yeah. right? And and so, but I think that's the point is that. You can manipulate God however you want to manipulate, but you're missing the point. If you do that, yeah, you're 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 moving yeah. away. You're supposed to let Christ transform you, Boom. rise you above the Yes. Yeah. Love it. Good stuff. I'm Good done. choice. Good choice. All right. Well, thanks for joining us on Deo's Books. We'll see you on the next one. Peace. Goodbye.